start out, um, I, uh, what a lovely day. I got up early, uh, enjoyed the weather, went and got my hair cut so we could have, be all presentable for our anniversary uh, show here today. And I want to give a shout out to, um, to Billy at the uh, Mount Tabor Barbershop. And uh, he has been uh, one of my um, sentinel um, predictors of where COVID's gone. So Billy this morning says that uh, things are looking good. We're going to be much better. Uh, he thinks the worst is over. And uh, Billy, I agree with you. I think the worst is over. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about what the future might hold. Um, so where are, we, uh, where are we at today? Well, it's anniversary day, 3rd of March, um, two years ago, uh, was the first case here in North Carolina, <clears throat> which um, was a person who had been visiting relatives at a nursing home in Washington State where there was a large COVID outbreak, and then returned here uh, to the uh, Triangle area in North Carolina having COVID. First case, two years ago. We've come a long ways. Um, we've been doing our updates here for roughly the same amount of time, so it's a, a bit of an anniversary morning. How are our cases doing here in North Carolina? <clears throat> We're down to a 16 per 100,000 per day um, here in Forsyth County, Mecklenburg County, 14 per 100,000 per day. Um, and really, the uh, other than Brunswick County, which is Wilmington, um, which is somewhat higher, and our mountain counties, which are still somewhat higher, higher, un, higher proportion of unvaccinated in those areas, uh, the, the rest of the state's looking pretty good. 5.8% um, positive. So um, in fall of last year, um, with case numbers like this and a percent positive like this, um, we would be, um, we were considering ourselves in a really good spot. Uh, but unfortunately, December came around, respiratory viral season, and then Omicron. And so I had to wear the mask longer um, and uh, had to get through the Omicron surge. I would say the Omicron surge would be declared. You can declare it pretty much over in our area. It's really no longer a surge. Yes, there's still cases, but um, as we'll talk about at the end here, um, I don't think we're in a pandemic emergency anymore really anywhere here in North Carolina. Maybe still in a pandemic, but moving out of that is time in our next couple weeks as well. So what's happened in the last two weeks is the CDC has changed how they rate whether your county is high, medium, or low, which the, the CDC has been declaring whether you're a high-risk county, medium county, or low-risk county now for, um, for almost two years, um, maybe a year and a half. Um, a lot of people didn't really pay attention to it because um, the numbers were so difficult to wrap your head around and figure out what it meant. To tell you the truth right now, um, even though there is more um, um, news mention of the CDC's new measurements, um, they're actually even harder to wrap yourself head around. So here is how the CDC determines whether your county is high risk of transmission, medium or low. First thing is, is they look at your number of cases um, and uh, per 100,000 per day. So for instance, here in Forsyth County, Mecklenburg County, uh, we're in the sweet spot for that. We're well under 
um, the numbers that they would consider problematic. So it would put us on the low end of the moderate. And then they look at your hospitals and how your hospitals are dealing with COVID. And one metric there is the percent positive of the people admitted to your hospital which have um, COVID, a positive test for COVID. Doesn't mean they're admitted for COVID, just means they have a positive test. And as you know, we have asymptomatic positives. And so that number is 15% or lower to be uh, out of the high range. So we're well in that um, here in Forsyth County at both of our hospitals here. Um, and then the last criteria is the number of people admitted to your hospital in the last seven days who've had COVID. Again, doesn't mean they were admitted for COVID. It could mean that they just had a positive test when they came in, even though they were coming in for something else. So that number is you need to be less than 20. Well, if you're a large referral hospital that takes patients from 21 counties, um, then that number um, is hard to meet. Um, and so if you look at the CDC map of North Carolina, uh, the hospitals that are along the I-40 corridor and the I-95 corridor, which are our referral hospitals, by the way, are higher um, than the rest. So if you go to counties who have small 50-bed hospitals who don't even have an ICU, they're gonna be much lower on that map. So you kind of have to look at the information and the data yourself. The other thing is the CDC doesn't update that but every seven days. So when you're coming down the hill, like coming down the Omicron surge, the numbers that you had a week and a half ago are still being counted against you because it's the number of admissions in your hospitals in the, in the, in the days, seven days before it was measured. So we were last looked at last Friday, so it would have been the time before that. So um, it, they're already out of date when you see it when you're coming down the hill. These new metric is more designed to be sensitive for going up the hill. So when you start to have more cases and you're starting to get hit with the wave, um, then it measures what's going on in the hospitals. And the ho why are we looking at the hospitals so intently is because it, it measures the impact of those cases. Um, because so many cases now, particularly in vaccinated or previously infected people, are mild colds and don't have much impact on the community. <clears throat> Whereas people that are sick enough to go in the hospital is a measurement of total impact. So going by just high, medium, and low by the CDC criteria doesn't really give you enough of a story to know um, what your risks really are. Um, and so I did the numbers uh, for here in Forsyth County, and I did it for Guilford and Mecklenburg. Mecklenburg, by the way, I think technically is officially moderate right now, yellow on the CDC. Um, and, but I did the numbers, so we would be in moderate had we been taking the numbers as they were over the last week uh, here in our area. So um, that's where we're sitting, which is one of the reasons why when I did the projections that my recommendations were for the city of Winston-Salem and for the school systems that this week that they could go to mask optional states in those areas. Um, and um, 
and I still stand behind that advice, and I believe it's sound advice. Um, and uh, I think our transmission's in a much better place. Now, having said that, um, there are still cases occurring, uh, and the, the more severe cases are still in the unvaccinated people, um, and a small number of people with underlying health problems, particularly those who are immunocompromised. And so um, we still have to do things a little bit different um, for those people, and we'll talk a little bit about continuing to use one of our tools that has gotten us a long ways through the pandemic, and that's our masks for people who need it. Um, so our cases in actually across the world are actually coming down now, about a 16% drop across the world. Interestingly, there's a few countries that are having more problems now. I'll point out South Korea and I'll point out New Zealand. So New Zealand got through the whole pandemic with basically no COVID. I mean, it's an island and they were very careful about how they let um, visitors um, from other places into their country. And if there was one case in a town, they would do a whole lockdown on that one town. So it was pretty strict, pretty stringent, but it worked and they kept their numbers down. Now they've decided that it's time to start relaxing some of their restrictions and they're doing so. And, but they have more of a non-immune population, so their cases are going up. Um, but they are more vaccinated. But, you know, with Omicron, breakthrough cases happen um, with Omicron, and they're not uncommon. And if those people go get tested, it'll get, get counted as a case, whereas the country impact may not be quite so high. Same thing going on right now in Denmark and the UK. Um, these are, you know, highly vaccinated areas where you look at their case numbers and it's like, hmm, they're having a problem. But the impact on their society really isn't um, so huge. In fact, England, which was really the first one to have the brunt of Omicron, um, is basically releasing just about all their um, um, restrictions on everything um, here in the, next, uh, in the next couple, three weeks. So uh, and they're a little bit ahead of us. Um, now, while I may be presenting a, uh, a bit of a rosy picture, um, and, and I am, I mean, it feels good to me to be able to talk about positive news and COVID for a while. Um, we got to keep our eyes out for those variants that might be on the horizon, because um, variants, um, there's two things that are a problem with the variant. Um, that one is, is, are they more transmissible than the circulating virus? And the second is, do they evade immunity? So if you've had immunity by previous infection or vaccination, will the variant get around it and go around that roadblock? Um, and then uh, lastly, you have to know whether the variant causes more serious disease um, than the previous variant. So um, the, uh, the one variant, as an example, that we've been watching is the uh, BA2. Some people call it the, quote, stealth variant because it's a little bit harder um, to identify just looking at testing um, de novo. You have to do a full sequence on all your COVID isolates. And then, um, but people have been following that and there are some countries in Europe, Denmark, one of them, where it's the predominant variant now. So that variant's a little bit more transmissible than its father, the Omicron itself, the BA1 variant. 
Um, but is it that much more transmissible? Maybe for a population of people, it's more transmissible enough for it to get a toehold in and, and kind of push out its dad. Um, um, and, and that's happening. Um, but for an individual, is it that much bigger of a deal? Probably not. Um, the transmission factor or secondary attack rate is not really that much higher to make an in, it, it a bigger deal for a person, one single person. Um, because what you do and how you do it um, is, is going to have much more of an impact and overshadow it. The other thing is, is does it evade immunity? And the, and the data is pretty good now. No, it's not going to. It, it doesn't evade immunity any more than its father, the BA1 variant, and it doesn't uh, evade natural immunity anymore um, either. And so if you've been previously infected or vaccinated, and particularly vaccinated and boosted, you're just as protected against that as you are um, against uh, the BA1 and the Omicron. So I'm not really too worried about BA2. Um, it's really not a variant of concern. Um, it's a variant of interest, but not of concern. Um, and right now, um, looking at the radar, the variant radar, I don't see any others out there right now um, that are too worrisome. Um, and when do variants come up is when you have increasing numbers of cases, um, either somewhere else in the world or here in the US rather than decreasing. So I think we're not going to see any variants for a little while. I won't predict, never, um, and it could be possible in the future. Um, and, and we just have to watch that. And we have to watch our sequencing. I've been asked, are there any VA2 variants here in North Carolina? A handful. We've had a small number, um, both uh, down in the Charlotte area and up here in the Winston area. Um, and when I mean a handful, I mean a very small number, <laughs> like less than five. Um, Wake County in the, in the Triangle, I'm not so sure about, but it's less than 5%, which is the, uh, of all of our uh, COVID that we're seeing now right now in the state. Um, so schools and universities. So um, our schools uh, here in Forsyth County. Um, and uh, including the private schools, all uh, decided to go mask optional this week. Um, and we'll uh, talk about what mask optional means. Um, we're still doing um, contact tracing here in Forsyth County uh, so we can just kind of keep an eye on things so we can compare it, um, whether masks um, off are a problem. I don't think they will be, um, but we need to watch it to make sure so for a little while, we're going to still watch that. Um, in, um, in the uh, Wake Forest University is going max ma mask optional when they get to their spring break, uh, and that's next week. Uh, except in the classroom, it'll be um, mask for one more week after that, um, and to give people time to make that transition. Um, and um, the city here of Winston-Salem, uh, we went um, without our uh, masks or mask optional on Tuesday. Although looking around in the grocery stores and out in different areas and workplaces, I still see a lot of masks being worn uh, and that's okay. And I'll talk about, you know, about the masks here specifically in a minute. Um, just a shout out for Wake Forest University. I think there's been the, the number of students um, who've had COVID 
in the last three weeks is um, less than five. And for a large university that has a lot of residence halls, that's just fantastic. So hats off to the leadership, the students, the faculty down at Wake Forest. Um, the Omicron surge was a little bit of, a, of, a, of an annoyance at that university. It wasn't a major problem. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a great um, hold it up to the rest of the country to show, you, to show how it can be done. Um, now let's talk about the mask mandates uh, and masks coming off. Uh, here um, at Wake Forest, uh, a, uh, or Atrium Health, um, up here in uh, the Wake Forest area, um, we are um, going ma uh, mask optional uh, tomorrow for our um, uh, academic spaces, for administrative spaces, and um, for our education spaces. Um, the hospital and the acute care hospital and the clinics, masks will still be required. Um, and so for those of you who, um, who are um, Atrium Health, Wakes Forest Baptist uh, um, employees, teammates, um, that's the way it's going to be for us. Um, so in, uh, in the campuses and the buildings where there are no patient care areas, you don't need to wear a mask, for example. Uh, in the purely education spaces and some of the other buildings, you don't need to wear a mask. And, um, and the communication has gone out, so you can look for that on the intranet or in your email and you'll see it on how to do that. But the important thing is for everybody in the entire community, <laughs> in the entire triad, is that when you're going into a healthcare facility, be it a hospital or be it a clinic, you need to wear a mask. And that's because we're under OSHA rules. And to tell you the truth, it's a good idea because there are more people who have illnesses going to hospitals and clinics. And when you get sick, what do you do? You go to a doctor. And so, um, so we need to have that protection for our staff and for our other patients. Um, so be a good citizen and, uh, and wear your mask for health care um, because it's important. It'll also help protect you. Um, now, masks, um, as time have come on, have been an important tool for us. <clears throat> and um, I'm not going to uh, diminish that. You'll see a lot of stuff out on social media, a lot of misinformation saying masks don't work. They actually make you sicker. Um, that is not true. I will emphatically say that is not true. I, as a doctor, put on a mask when I go into a patient's room who has a highly transmissible infection. And masks work. It protects me. And why otherwise would surgeons wear, not wear masks? I mean, surgeons have been wearing masks since the early 1900s. It's done for a reason because it protects them and it protects the patient. And uh, masks work. Masks work in communities. We have a lot of data now that communities who wear masks have a lot better mitigation for the spread of COVID than communities that don't. We know it in schools. And so if you say a mask doesn't work, you're just plain wrong. They do. It's an important tool. So the question is, is do we still need the mask? Do they work, but do we still need it? Is it a tool that we need to pull out or keep in the toolbox? 
So if you're used to fixing things around the house, you pull the tool out of the toolbox when you need it, and you use it when you need it, and when you don't need it anymore, you put it back in the toolbox, or maybe you get a different tool out. So times are different now, and uh, such a large proportion of our population has been vaccinated. A whole heck of a lot of people got COVID during the Omicron, and that gives you some immunity. We have treatments now that are in good supply for people who are at higher risk. Um, and we have a good supply of N95 masks that you can use to protect yourself. So we're moving, it's, it's a stepping stone from moving from a pandemic to an endemic virus. We are gonna put the mask back in the toolkit for the society at large, but if you're a person who still needs or wants that tool, use it. So who really needs to continue to use that tool? It, people who are, have underlying health conditions that put them at higher risk for COVID, people who are immunocompromised, and people who are at the extremes of age, they probably still need the tool. And this, let me give some examples. So if you have some heart disease, some lung disease, if you're a dialysis patient, um, if you um, are on cancer chemotherapy, if you've had a bone marrow transplant or an organ transplant, if you're pregnant, which puts you at higher risk for COVID, if you have a BMI over 30, so if you're overweight, um, these are people who have higher risks. And you might wanna wear a mask when indoors, particularly if you can't social distance and it's crowded. So you can make those decisions on your own and you can use either a surgical mask or an N95 to protect yourself. The N95 is, is the best for protecting yourself. And I can tell you, because I do this as a doctor, you can walk into a room with other people with COVID. If you're wearing your N95 and you got it on right, you're gonna be fine, even with the underlying health problems. So uh, there are some people who might wanna continue to wear masks. There are also some people who are still a little anxious about it. I mean, we've been wearing masks for two years. It feels funny to take it off. You kind of feel a little bit out there. Maybe like you're not quite, you know, protected. Um, and, um, and so if you want to wear your mask for a while until, um, until you feel more comfortable and safe about it, that's fine too. If it makes you feel better, use it. Um, that makes sense to me. There's another group I forgot to mention two weeks ago, but that might want to think about it. If you've got a big event coming up and you'd rather not have COVID for that event, just like you'd rather not have the flu or you'd rather not have some other viral crud, wear your mask a while before the event. Let's say your daughter or son's getting married and you're having a big get together. You know, he may want to lay low for a week or two and not get sick. I mean, it just makes sense. Wearing a mask will help you with that. You're going on a big vacation and you've been planning on this vacation for two and a half, three years. And if, if you all of a sudden got sick and couldn't get on an airplane or you couldn't get through customs or immigration, I'd probably wear a mask for the week before that because I don't wreck the chance to have my, my cool vacation. So, um, you know, you can use masks for that too. So, um, you know, the bottom line is, is that it's time for society to, not really need to make all these decisions for us all the time, we can start to shift and make them on their own. And that's a very important stepping stone. 
It's an important stepping stone of going from um, an epidemic or a pandemic to being endemic because COVID's not going to go away. It'll be around. So next respiratory season in January when it's normal cold and flu season, COVID will be part of that too. Maybe we'll put a mask on for a while again, but we don't need the government to tell us to do that because we can protect ourselves by doing it. One of the other groups that might want to continue to wear masks for a little while, and, and I would recommend it at least for a couple more weeks, are daycare centers for two reasons. One is kids in daycare can't get immunized yet. Um, and um, the other is, is that um, respiratory viruses are just more of a problem in daycare centers. They have been since the beginning of time. And so until our case numbers come down a little bit further, um, I would probably want to wear a mask if, uh, or have my child wear a mask in a daycare center. And I'd certainly have the staff continue to wear masks. Um, daycare centers are going to be spending a lot more time outside. The weather's nice. Kids love to be outside. And it's a great place for them to be, which will make them safer anyway. But uh, let's see how things go in the next two weeks. And then I'll tell you in two weeks whether daycare centers can start to relax that too. We still also need to wear masks uh, on public transportation, although on school buses you don't need to. That was a special exemption. But other public transportation, even um, like a, a, a type of a community shuttle bus, so if your uh, living community has a bus, small bus, or your university or your school, uh, if it's not technically a school bus, you still need to wear a mask. Masking on public transportation, including airplanes, is going to get evaluated here again in another week or two because the federal, ma the federal mandate for that's going to expire, so we'll see what they have to say. Um, I can tell you the airline employees would like to have them stay because um, airplanes are a place of a bit higher transmission risk and the mask helps there, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about vaccine. There's some new things out in the news. <clears throat> Novavax, uh, which is a vaccine that's available in some countries uh, in the world right now, but not quite yet there in the United States, is a vaccine that's made a little differently. You know that uh, Moderna and Pfizer are messenger RNA vaccines, uh, and J&J &J is a vaccine that uses a, um, an ad, a replication incompetent adenovirus which is a fancy way to say an adenovirus that can't do its job to get the, um, the messenger RNA into you. And then once the messenger RNA is in us, then it makes the spike protein which we get immune to. And uh, these are the vaccines that we've been relying on. Novavax does it a little bit of a different way. It actually takes the spike protein itself and then adds it to something called an adjuvant. And an adjuvant is an immune system tickler that makes the body respond better to that protein. And this is the way we've been making some of our vaccines here in the United States for some time, uh, including uh, hepatitis B, uh, the HPV vaccine, um, the new shingles vaccine. These are all protein, adjuvant and protein vaccines. Um, and so we're used to that. And, and there's no messenger RNA component. There's no... Um, um, genome type component um, in it. So some people might be more comfortable with that and that's fine and uh, so when that vaccine comes out 
It looks like its efficacy is probably about the same as the messenger RNA vaccines. We don't have as much data with the Omicron variant, though, because we haven't, it hasn't had enough experience with it yet. Um, but that is at the FDA right now. I suspect it will be approved. Uh, when is that approval going to happen? In the next few weeks, I think. Um, it's, it's getting closer. So that's one to keep your eye out for. There's another vaccine um, that is made by Sanofi, which is a big vaccine company. They've been making vaccines for ages um, and uh, decades. <laughs> and that, um, they have another protein adjuvanted vaccine. Um, and um, that one has uh, not quite got enough data together yet um, to go to the FDA. Um, so it, it'll be a while, but I think it'll be out on the horizon. Early data shows that it's probably not quite as good as a messenger RNA vaccine, but it's pretty good. So, um, so keep your eye on that one too. Uh, that one's further off, but look for Novavax in the near future. Some other things, um, some more data that we've gotten with vaccines um, and, and COVID transmission. So the, where COVID transmission is its highest is in a household. Obviously, you're living together, you're sleeping together, you're eating together, playing together, um, going in and out of the car together. So you got a lot of time together where a virus can get transmitted. So the, um, the rate of transmission in a household um, for Omicron, if you've not been vaccinated, is roughly, um, the attack rate, what we call it, is roughly 70%. So 70% in that household will get it if there's another person in the household. Maybe your own experience has been that way, talk to your friends, but basically as a household of four, usually one out of four escape and that's about it. Um, now if you've been, it, it, that's if you're unvaccinated. If you've been infected before at any time during the pandemic and you know you got COVID and you were test positive for COVID and you had symptoms, then the transmission rate's about 50% or a little bit less. So it helps protect you. And then the, um, if you've had vaccine, the attack rate is a little bit higher than that, maybe 55% attack rate. So if the bottom line is, is if you're in a household and you have tons of exposure, and that exposure is to the highly transmissible Omicron, your chances are pretty good you're gonna get it, whether you're vaccinated or not, because there's just enough virus and time of being exposed to that, that it gets into the nose and it starts the infection. But if you've had previous infection and or you have been vaccinated, particularly if you've been boosted, then you're going to get a breakthrough infection rather than getting a serious infection. And a breakthrough infection is largely a cold or a mild case of the flu, and that we can live with. So it's pretty good data about how the vaccines help us in the most high-risk area, which is a household transmission. We also know it in healthcare, by the way, where we get exposed to COVID quite regularly. Um, but most of the time we're wearing a mask. So we have a different and another tool with us. So um, the, um, that brings to, to the point of um, how immune is our population right now? Well, our, immune, our population is immune enough so that 
the Omicron surge left us, and we're over it. The surge, anyway. The virus will be around, but the surge is over. And um, a study just came out that the CDC sponsored and paid for, looking at antibody levels across a wide swath of the population, including here at Wake Forest Baptist. Uh, we were um, part of that. And um, so it turns out that amongst um, kids um, that of all ages, greater than two, I think it was, about 60% of our kids have gotten COVID sometime during the last two years. That's a pretty high number. Um, a lot of them were asymptomatic or had such mild infections that just went under the radar screen. 60%. Um, and then in adults, it's a little bit less than that. Just a tad over half of us have gotten COVID over the last two years. Now that data, they stopped collecting at the end of January. And if you remember, the Omicron surge wasn't even over then. There are still a lot of people getting COVID after that. So the numbers are actually probably even higher than that. Um, so there, we're, we're at an area now where, um, at least to the variants that we have right now, our immunity is pretty darn good. And that, uh, that's why um, we're talking about masks coming off. And that's why we're talking about relaxing some of the other few remaining restrictions we have. So that's good news. Now, if you're immunocompromised or have a lot of underlying health conditions, um, then your antibody levels fall quicker after immunization or after natural infection. And that's why the mask still makes sense for you. So where are we going to be at um, over the next few weeks in the summer? Well, I can tell you that um, I think it's a good time to start planning your summer vacation. In fact, if you haven't done it yet, good luck finding a place <laughs> if you're looking for rental property or a hotel, because uh, a lot of other people have already been booking up. Um, and um, I, I think it's going to be a good summer. Um, and I know that camps for kids are also booking up quick, um, day camps or so. Um, overnight camps, um, I think that if you're a child and you want to have an overnight camp for your child, go for it. Um, there may be very well be a vaccine requirement, though. Um, so, because most camps that are overnight, I think, are going to require that COVID vaccine. If not, they should. Um, and um, I think if you want to go to Europe um, or travel, things are starting to open up considerably. A lot of countries are dropping their quarantine requirements, their testing requirements, and um, the um, um, and even Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, Thailand, and Vietnam are going to be relaxing. Right now, they're kind of hard to get into, but they'll be relaxing their entry requirements here too in the month. Even Hawaii is uh, relaxing their entry requirements. Um, so um, when, if you're doing travel um, like this, take a look at where you're going, look at exactly what the requirements are just to make sure. But particularly if you're vaccinated, most places you won't even need to test. Except for right now, coming back to the United States. If you're returning to the United States, uh, internationally, you have to have a test within 24 hours. Um, and you can use home tests, but it has to be done in a video monitored type of way. Um, and so make sure you look at the fine print 
um, on the uh, INS uh, and the CDC travel website on how to do that. Um, will that requirement go away? A at some point it probably will. I, I don't know when because it won't make sense. The other thing that I think we'll start to see go away are um, contact tracing, quarantine, and isolation. Now one of those is actually coming true now. The CDC no longer recommends contact tracing, and uh, except for certain high-risk populations, jails, prisons, nursing homes, um, outbreak cluster outbreaks in congregate areas. If you had a school that was having a large problem, you would do it. So it's more in response to a problem than it is just widespread contact tracing, which means that if you've been exposed to COVID, you're not going to get a phone call from the health department anymore. Um, does that mean you shouldn't lay low after being exposed to COVID? No, you'll probably still want to do so. Um, if you're vaccinated, that means just getting tested three to five days after that exposure. If you're unvaccinated, you should stay home for five days and then get tested and then you should wear a mask for 10 days after that exposure. But it means that the government's not doing it for you anymore. Um, I think um, at some point quarantine will go away too um, because we don't quarantine any of our other respiratory viruses, including influenza. But um, it, um, right now it hasn't, but I think it will. Um, and when you think about it, it makes sense. Um, if we're transferring responsibility for virus transmission and protection to the individual and quarantine is kind of, we may not need that tool. Um, the, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be a good citizen and you shouldn't do things that make sense anyway. If you get exposed to COVID and you know you are, be a good citizen, lay low for five days if you're unvaccinated and get tested three to five days after that exposure. Wear your mask hey, I could have it, I could be an asymptomatic carrier. So wear a mask for the 10 days after that exposure. It just makes sense, just do it. If you get sick, stay home. I mean, that's something we should have been doing for decades, right? Don't go to school or work with this big snotty runny nose or cough. Um, be good, be kind to your coworkers, be kind to your other students and don't go to work sick. Um, and uh, if you're recovering and you say, hey, I'm mostly better, tomorrow I think it'll be completely gone, then wear a mask for two or three days. Don't give it to other people. So it's, it's, we're just gonna have, this is what the virus being endemic is gonna mean to us. These are decisions we should be making going forward. Um, and, um, and I think it'll be fine and it'll be good. I don't think we need the government to tell us anymore what to do unless COVID changes or a new variant comes or something really shifts the nature of the pandemic or the um, epidemic. Um, so um, with that, um, I got uh, forwarded a question. Um, I got one J&J shot, then in November, a Moderna booster. I have not had COVID. Should I get a third shot like a second Moderna booster? I would say yes, that would be my recommendation. And let me tell you about Dr. Roll's three immunologic hit theory. <laughs> and it's more than just a theory, there's pretty good data behind it. That you really need, your immune system really kind of needs three exposures to COVID to get a pretty good um, level of immunity 
that um, I think will be long lasting. <clears throat> and, um, and what does that mean? Two shots or getting the infection. That's three, right? Shot, shot, infection. You've had three. Or if you've never had COVID, three shots. Two shots and a booster. If you've had COVID twice, you've got two. You only need a booster. <laughs> so go for three. Three is the answer. Um, you won't find that written down anywhere, but I'm, I'm kind of <clears throat> looking at the data and trying to determine what it'll mean. I think you're going to see more information coming out of the CDC's ACIP committee on basically how to make sure you stay vaccinated. Will there be a, f a, a fourth shot? Will there be a booster to our, boost our already boosted state? Um, probably not except maybe in the fall before we get into respiratory viral season. We'll have to wait and see how long, what the data shows as far as breakthrough infections and escapes and what variants we might have then. But I don't see any in the near future. Um, one other thing I want to say about vaccines, I didn't mention it earlier, but now. So for kids, um, the um, under five kids have not yet had an opportunity to get vaccinated. And the FDA looked at the data about two shots in the under five group with the, um, the, the reduced dosage vaccine for that group. Um, and it turns out that the, uh, the antibody response and protection isn't good enough for two shots. So we're looking at a third shot um, for the under five group. That study's ongoing and we'll probably have enough data accumulated that the FDA will be able to um, uh, uh, act on that in, in mid to late April. Um, it, there are no problems with safety yet whatsoever in the under five group. Uh, it's just making sure it works as best it can. And it looks like three shots are going to need it. In the five to 12 year old group, <clears throat> um, it looks like using the one third messenger RNA, which was Pfizer, that was the one that was approved for that group, or the one third of the adult dose dosage um, fades faster in the 5 to 12 year olds than it does in adults. Um, and that means there will be a third shot, I think, coming for the 5 to 12 year olds. When will that third shot be coming? I would predict uh, sometime roughly about four to five months after the end of the second shot. And since the 5 to 12 year olds couldn't get shots until the end of November, and the second shot would have been in December if you got it right away, and then you wait your two weeks after that. That was roughly Christmas time. So we're talking about April or May. And so look for a recommendation for boosters for kids, five to 12, so that third shot for them at that time frame. Should parents be worried that their child's not fully protected? Um, no, I wouldn't be worried actually because it turns out that the waning immunity is more for a breakthrough, but those kids look really well protected still for hospitalization and serious consequences of COVID. So, um, so I wouldn't worry, wouldn't panic, but just look for the, the booster recommendation for the 5 to 12 year olds coming out later this spring. So that, we have a question. <laughs> I'm looking at my colleague from Spectrum News. Um, 
Today marks the two-year anniversary of the first reported case. What are the lessons learned from that? Well, that's a big question. What are the lessons learned as our anniversary from the first case? Well, let me throw it in broad terms rather than give you the textbook. Um, <clears throat> first, um, that um, I think we learned about how highly transmissible respiratory viruses um, transmit through populations fairly quickly and how um, the, the hopes of eradicating that from continuing, in other words, stopping it and making you know, the virus become extinct is extremely difficult and, um, and probably impossible for highly contagious respiratory viruses. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think we've kind of learned some about that. Um, now, um, I think we also learned that lockdowns work but they're extreme and they're painful. So to lock down a community. You remember almost two years ago, weren't many cars out on the street. <laughs> but it, it really did flatten the curve, which is what we wanted to do then. Otherwise, our hospitals would have just been overrun. Um, and, and it got us through the first wave, the lockdown did. I think we learned that masks are a good tool and you use them when you need them. And, and they really helped us get through some of these waves um, without having to do a lockdown. We didn't have to lock down during Delta. In fact, most of the schools, public schools, were open again. But masks are what got through us through Delta. Um, I think we also learned that political divisiveness and politics getting into public health is not a good idea. It, it slowed down our responses, uh, and there were excess cases, and there were excess deaths because of that. And that just didn't need to happen. Um, and when we have our pandemic again in the future, some year, could be decades away, but someday one will happen again. Um, we, we, don't, we don't need that part. Um, we need to get and respond together. And, and I think we learned that you respond to data as new data comes in. And, um, and if you have new data that says you should be doing something different, you be nimble and you change and you do something different, whether that means adding restrictions or taking away restrictions. Respond to the data and respond to that. Um, and then I think we also learned that communication is huge. And I feel really good to be a part of that um, for the triad community up here. And I really thank all you guys uh, for the media for being you know, an extremely responsible local state and regional reporting and, uh, and helping us get the word out. So thank you. Um, what would you say the biggest accomplishments or missteps taken by the state, nation, and world during that? Oh, missteps? Oh, boy. Um, well, you know, I said uh, compliments yeah, <laughs> compliments and missteps. <laughs> so compliments, I mean, I think, you know, public health, in all of those areas, both locally and at the state level and at the national level, have really been kind of strangled over the last few decades because we've been complacent. I mean, it, and you know, you don't throw as much resources into it when things are going well. But I think we found out that the marginalized populations didn't, well, it wasn't so true for them. Um, those who are social and economically and racially disadvantaged. 
Um, and um, the public health responses in those areas. So the public health has done a bang up job. I mean, I look at my colleagues at the Forsyth County Health Department, and man, a shout out for them too, because I mean, for a year and a half, these guys worked seven days a week. Um, and um, they, they worked hard and provided good information and data. And that was true both at the, at the local and, um, and at the national and uh, state level too. A lot of people have just hung in there and worked hard for a long time. Um, and we need more resources in public health. I think we've learned that. Um, and, um, and we can't say, oh, pandemic's over, time to starve public health again. But we can't do that. Um, so um, the, um, the, the, but I think the biggest lesson learned is that those problems that exist in a society and in health systems prior to a pandemic get magnified and amplified during the pandemic and become even more of a problem. So the problems with access to health care that we have in the United States, either in the uninsured or in um, persons who are marginalized, um, really got amplified. And um, there were higher hospitalizations in those groups and there were higher deaths. Um, and there are issues with our healthcare system that um, really need to be re-looked at and fixed as time goes on and there'll be some com you know, complicated decisions to do that um, and some difficult decisions um, moving forward. But, um, but I think we need to take the lessons that we learned from the last two years and apply them and shore up our public health, shore up how health care is delivered and remove disparities in care um, for more marginalized people. And that'll help us not only for the next pandemic, but for delivering health care, prenatal care, the basic tenements of what we need for health um, in the interim. Oh, boy, that's a good question. By the way, my colleagues from WXII um, who've been with us throughout the entire pandemic. So thank you for that. Um, so how, how, are, how have we all changed? Well, COVID's touched all of us one way or another. Um, it's either, you know, just touched us as a minor annoyance back during the lockdown or um, changed the way we work and play. Um, or it's really impacted. And I'm, you know, talking about people who have had, you know, loved ones um, who have gotten um, seriously ill or died. I mean, we've had, what, 800 deaths here in Forsyth County. That's not pittance. Um, and for those people, it's tragedy um, and, uh, and it's sadness. And so I, I, w I won't say that, you know, how is it, affected me because for the people who've had loved ones who have gotten seriously ill or died, it, nothing can be worse than that. So um, how has it changed for me? 
Um, you know, I, I reevaluate a little bit about what's what's important and what makes a difference. Um, and um, I think that um, you know we can find ways to to work, be it Zoom or whatever, um, using other ways. But you know, the, for those things that are really important and meaningful, um, we need to make sure we take care of those things. And um, I've also learned about the power of communication um, and how it can make a difference. Because I, you know, I really think here in the triad we've done a really good job with it, and uh, and I think it's helped. I think it's made a difference for our community. Um, and um, I, um, and I, you know, I'm, you know, people have reached out to me to, you know, thank me um, for helping do that, and. Uh, it makes me feel good. It's one, probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my entire career. So, um, so there are you know those kind of high spots. Probably would rather not have had a pandemic, but uh, um, you know there are. Um, you know, I t the message I have for my students and my medical students because the medical students had to go through you know all of this. And it really hit their education because for a while they couldn't see patients and they had to do things. And I said, well, you know, like, I learned a lot from the hardship times during my training and early in my career. And I learned a lot. I, I gathered a lot of school st skills and I put those skills in my toolbox. And, he, and when, when time came, I was able to pull them back out again. And those include skills, you know, in leadership and um, communication skills and working with people. And, so um, you know, you know, I'm not going to use the that tired phrase that you know it just makes you stronger um, because, but um, but you know, you take what you've learned. Everyone should over the last two years and use those use those things that we figured out. So, but thank you for that question. Yeah, long yeah, long COVID. I yeah, I don't want to uh, diminish that for those people. Um, so long COVID is is still not well understood. Um, we're we're starting to figure some things out um, about it, and the reason we don't understand it quite so well or so fast because it really gets at some of those not yet well understood mysteries about the human body that we're still figuring out. Because long COVID probably has to do with a, uh, an inflammatory response in certain areas that doesn't get shut off when it's supposed to. Um, there are a lot of other entities in medicine that come from that same problem. But some of the things we've learned about long COVID, one, with time it does get better. Um, and, um, um, but it does take time. The second thing that we've learned, and some data out of England not too long ago, that if you get vaccinated and or boosted if you've been vaccinated, it seems to help. Somehow it makes the, it's like hitting the reset button for your immune system a little bit. 
So it does seem to help. The other thing is, is we're learning about exercise tolerance and how to go back to exercise. And um, so rehabilitation um, and rehabilitation aspects of medicine are, are learning more about that. There's going to be a lot of research about long COVID. Um, and um, because of that research, we're going to learn more about our immune systems. And there'll be positive things that come out of that. We're also going to learn about some of those long-term effects that happen after other viral infections. So long COVID wasn't the first. I mean, I've been seeing people throughout my entire career in medicine who get some type of acute viral infection and then have these prolonged symptoms of, um, of fatigue and tiredness and um, headaches and mental fog. and. Um, and so there are a lot of other viruses that can do it too. COVID seems to be more adept at it though. But I mean, it's also Lyme disease um, for some, you know, who get Lyme disease, it takes them a while to recover. And so um, we'll learn more. And um, this is a great time to apply the research and the money and um, into that and learn more to help everybody who has these things. Any other questions? Um, we had a question about vaccines, asking if it, you thought there was a timeline of Moderna getting full FDA approval as well as like, mosquitoes and annual COVID. Yeah, so full FDA approval for Moderna. So um, they um, full FDA approval for Moderna is um, is for adults is done. Um, it's out. So. For kids, uh, it'll be a little bit further down the pike because um, the application went in later than Pfizer's um, and the dose ranging is a little different. Um, and um, so that'll be a little bit further out. And then boosters will be a little bit further out because boosters came after the initial vaccine series and the way the FDA gives approvals it have to be looked at separately. Um, I kind of consider Moderna approved as a booster already, but what was the second part to the question? Um, annual COVID. Do you think it's going to become like the flu shot? Yeah, will there be an annual COVID shot? It depends on a few things. Whether or not we need an annual COVID shot prior to respiratory viral season depends on these things. One, how long-lasting and how robust is immunity from Omicron? If it's long-lasting and robust, then it probably won't be annual. It may be more periodic, kind of like a tetanus shot. Um, the second thing it's going to depend on is variants and how far variants go around to escape immunity in the future. Um, Omicron didn't vary enough, it turns out, because the vaccine still worked pretty well against it. Um, there were breakthroughs, but the breakthroughs weren't of high impact. So uh, it's going to depend on those two things. Um, and, um, and we'll see. But we'll, as time goes on, we'll have more vaccines available for that if we need it. All right, so I'll go ahead. And I will see you in two weeks. I think we'll still have some updates enough to get together in two weeks. Um, and we'll see how things are going now that we've taken our masks off. <laughs>